I'll invite you to turn now in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. As we continue through this and, and, and now move into the final couple chapters, as we have been seeing, uh, Paul has very wonderfully laid out for us how it is that although we were once enslaved in our sin, and we were enslaved under the condemnation of God's law and all that it demands, we have been set free by God through faith in Christ Jesus. That those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are freed from this, freed from this enslavement, free from the condemnation that the law holds forth over us on account of our failure. And Paul has made clear to us that both Jews and Greeks alike, as he was writing to the Galatians, were both enslaved. Even the Jews, under the Mosaic Covenant, they were not freed from sin by that covenant. And very clearly, I think more evidently, Gentiles were certainly enslaved to their sin and idols. This demand of righteousness hangs over everyone, but nobody can reach up to it. All are enslaved, whether Jew or Gentile, Paul has said. That much is very clear. But equally clear, it is Christ Jesus who comes and frees sinners from this condition, whether one is Jew or Gentile. It is through faith alone in Christ that a sinner is united to Christ, declared righteous on account of Christ's righteousness being imputed or credited to us. And it is by this faith that we are also made Sons of God, adopted by God, and made heirs. We have an eternal inheritance that awaits us. And so Paul has been saying we are no longer slaves, but we are sons. Namely, we are free sons of God. And this freedom that we have here, that we possess by faith, is a most precious gift of God's kindness and grace. It is freely given and it is freely received by sinners with just an open hand. We do nothing to earn this or grab hold of it, but God gives it to us and we receive it as empty-handed sinners by believing. And as we come into chapter 5, Paul explicitly tells us, again, of the greatness of this freedom that we have in Christ. And he tells us not to move from this position. We are not to abandon this belief and the hope that is ours by faith. He tells us to stand firm here. It is a freedom that we have that is worth fighting for, that is worth being on guard for to preserve. In fact, the conviction that he is talking about is one that is worth suffering and even dying for. Because it is at the very core of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so let's read. We're just going to read and cover verses 1 to 6 today. So let's begin reading in Galatians 5 verse 1. The word of God says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision... Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, 
you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Verse 1 puts a good cap on what we looked at last time and what we came through in chapter 4. So after laying out the fact that we are free sons in Christ Jesus, Paul then tells us here to stand fast. And yet the verse also, not only does it end off and tie off chapter 4 nicely, it also uh, transitions and introduces chapter 5 very nicely as well, as Paul will go on to elaborate some of what is involved in standing firm in this freedom that we have in Christ. So he he begins here in verse 1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Now that statement might seem a little bit redundant. Uh, We are set free, and he says, for freedom. It seems a little bit of an unnecessary statement, perhaps. But I think what Paul is doing here is that he is emphasizing this freedom. We are set free for the sake of freedom. That is, the freedom and the liberty that we enjoy in Christ Jesus is in itself a very good thing. It is something that we should be glad and grateful to have, and we are in fact to guard. We are free from the demand of God's law as a means of trying to attain righteousness before God. We are free from the condemnation that comes from our failure to obey that law. We are free from sin's eternal power and grip, from Satan's domain of darkness. We were enslaved, but we are now free, and we are free through faith in Christ Jesus. For freedom Christ has set you free. And then comes two commandments in verse 1. He says, Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. He says, Because of this freedom that has been won for you by Christ, that is yours by faith, Do not go backwards into slavery. Do not return again that heavy yoke of slavery upon you. Those who seek, who come to you and would seek to bind your conscience now, those who would come and say to you that faith is insufficient to leave you justified before God, those who would come and say you must add works In order to receive the reward of righteousness, they would enslave you with these words. And the command here is to resist that and to stand firm in the freedom you have simply by faith. This is what Paul did and and told us about back in chapter 2 and verse 5 when the Judaizers, he had this run in with them, if you recall, back in Jerusalem. And he says that he did not yield to them even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. The truth of the very truth of the gospel, the essence of it was at stake in this. And Paul, therefore, did not yield even for a moment. There there was no yielding on this issue. This is a place to remain 
firm and dogmatic, Paul says. The scriptures here in Galatians 5 puts all believers on notice to remain in the freedom of the gospel and to preserve it, to stand here as soldiers who would stand guard over it. We are called to preserve the grace of the gospel and the freedom that comes with it. And so over the next few weeks as we work through chapter 5 here, we're going to look further at this issue of freedom including some of what it is and also what freedom in Christ is not, also important. And specifically, we're looking at its preservation in our midst. And what we see in our text today is that preserving freedom in Christ is indeed commanded of us, and we see that this task involves properly distinguishing between Law and grace. If we desire to obey Scripture's command here and to stand firm in the gospel, preserving the freedom of the gospel, if we would desire to not submit again to a yoke of slavery, this involves growing in our grasp and understanding of this distinction between law and grace or law and gospel. When it comes to justification, that is how we have a righteous standing before God, how it is that we are declared righteous before God's judgment, when it comes to this matter of justification, law and grace are two different and mutually exclusive paths to that end. And any Mingling of the two in this matter of justification destroys grace. The moment you blend law and grace, it is grace that is destroyed. Just as a little bit of poison will ruin an otherwise pure cup of water, just as a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump, so it is that a little bit of law mingled with grace in the matter of our justification, destroys and corrupts grace such that it is not the gospel. This is what Paul said right at the beginning of the book. You're turning to another gospel, not that there is another one. This is, this is what he's continuing to say and explain to us. So Paul takes us here again in verses 2 through 6. So again, if you would enjoy your freedom in Christ, and if you would stay there and defend this, then this distinction we're talking about is of an enormous help and significance. We've seen this distinction a number of times already, particularly back in chapter 3, verses 10 to 14, but Paul again returns to it here. So we're going to begin by looking at the way of law. So this this path of law in verses 2 to 4. So in verse 2, Paul writes, he says, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. This is a remarkable statement he makes. 
He is continuing his polemic against the Judaizers and against those in these Galatian churches who are receiving the message and then passing it on. If you accept this, he says, if you accept circumcision, you will get no benefit from Christ. He's saying you're not a Christian if you accept this. If you accept what the Judaizers are saying, you're not a Christian. You're outside of Christ. You get no benefit from him. That's a very, very strong statement to make. Again, it's a different gospel that is no gospel at all. Now he goes on in verse 6. He'll say it again later as well in Galatians. But he says in verse 6 that being circumcised or being uncircumcised really doesn't matter. The act in itself is irrelevant when it comes to justification. But here in verse 2, he says that if they accept it, Christ will be of no use. So that could maybe be potentially a bit confusing. Uh, Later, he's going to say it really doesn't matter one way or the other. But in verse 2, you better not accept this circumcision. So what's the difference here? Well, to accept circumcision in verse 2 is to accept that it is necessary to be kept in order to be justified. That it is a necessary act in order to be saved. This is the Judaizer's message. And so if you accept this, if you accept circumcision for that reason, then Christ is of no benefit to you because you've corrupted the grace of the gospel. As we'll see more clearly in verse 4 even, there are two different pathways here to justification. And if you start down this legal law path, even just a little bit, just accepting even circumcision, then you've got to go the whole way. This is what he says in verse 3. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Paul is repeating an argument that he has already made. That's why he says, I testify again. The law pathway to justification demands perfect obedience to the entirety of God's law. Not just to circumcision or to some of the externals of the law, food laws, etc., but all of it, including the moral law. They must keep the whole thing. That's what he's saying. And we should realize and recognize that this, of course, is an unbearable weight. This is the very thing that Paul is trying to drive home to his readers. It cannot be done by us sinners. It is slavery, is what he's been saying. And our disobedience to that law only then leaves us under a curse. Back in chapter 3, in verse 10, he said... For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. So again, the law is a different principle. It is a different pathway to righteousness before God 
then the principle, the pathway of grace and faith. The law principle is do this and live. The law holds forth promise of reward or payment upon works rendered. That's how law works. The law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. It's working to earn a wage. It's not believing God that he might give graciously something. It is working for a reward. And there is no adding just a little bit of law to grace. If you add circumcision, even just that, you say, well, God will be gracious to you if you believe in Christ Jesus and be circumcised. You got to be circumcised to be justified. If you just add that, then you do destroy the grace of the gospel. And you set yourself now on this other path of law or legalism. And the demand then, if you want to travel that path, is perfect obedience continually. That's what Paul says here. You are obligated. You are obligated. You are liable for the whole law. He wants you to feel that weight of that. All of it. Those who seek to enslave you, they will rarely, if ever, come to you and say, I've got an idea. You've got to keep the whole law in its perfection and entirety in order to be justified. They don't say it like that. They just want to bring in one or two, just some other act that is going to contribute to your justification on some foundational or instrumental level. That's how they will present it. They don't understand that God's law demands perfect and entire obedience. And because of that, this legal law pathway for you is not an option if you would be saved and justified before God. Rather, the only hope of a righteous standing of justification is a perfect righteousness that God would give you as a gift graciously that is received by faith. In verse 4, he continues, You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Here we see very, very starkly the utter incompatibility of these two ways of seeking righteousness before God. Again, to add circumcision to faith as the means by which you would be saved or receive God's salvation or righteousness is to seek justification by the law. That's what he says here. To add baptism to faith is to seek justification by the law. To seek to add speaking in tongues to faith. To add your best efforts to faith. To add your covenant faithfulness to faith. If you're going to do that as a means by which you will attain a righteous standing by God, then you've got to go the whole way and have perfect covenant faithfulness. You can't just add baptism. You've got to add everything that God requires of a human being. There is righteousness by faith that is a gracious gift received with an empty hand, 
or there is the legal law path, in which case Paul is telling us you must do it all and perfectly. And of course you do not, and we do not, and we cannot, and we will not, and no one ever has. No sinner ever has. And so when you go down that pathway, you're cut off from Christ. You're estranged from him. He says here of the Galatians, you've fallen from grace. You've abandoned the path of grace, the gracious way of salvation, and you're on the legal path. You have no benefit from Christ, he has said. This is how significant the issue is, how important this matter is. There is a canyon between these two different paths. Down that legal path for sinners, there is no benefit from Christ, but only estrangement and slavery to sin. So we are to stand firm in the freedom that Christ has secured for us. What happens is, We talk about being freed and saved and justified and forgiven our sins in Christ as a gift of God's grace. And then somebody gets nervous about this. That sounds too free and a little too good. And so they just bring something back in that's going to restrain you and hold you back. And well, we just got to have add a little something to that. And Paul is saying no to that. The grace of the gospel is truly good news. And so we're to stand firm in that freedom that Christ has secured and not return to the yoke of slavery. This is that law path. In verse 5, Paul returns to the way of grace here. He says in verse 5, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. We see here how salvation in Christ works and why it is that justification by the law is of no use. We don't seek justification through obedience and law-keeping because it is through the Holy Spirit's work and it is by faith that we wait, eagerly wait, for the hope of righteousness. There there is no legal striving here in order to gain and attain that righteous standing before God. We're waiting for it by faith. The emphasis is waiting. The emphasis is receiving. The emphasis is on the Spirit's work here. In the gospel of grace, God, through the Holy Spirit, regenerates and saves sinners. He gives them faith by which that sinner lays hold of Christ and receives his salvation. In that moment, the sinner is justified, declared righteous in God's courtroom. With our sins washed clean and the righteousness of Christ credited to us. That's how it is that we stand justified. And yet, of course, for the person so believing in Christ Jesus, in our persons, we still sin. We still wrestle with our flesh. 
We are not yet perfectly holy in our persons. And so we are simultaneously just and yet still sinners. But the one united to Christ by by this faith is also being sanctified by God as the Spirit of God begins to also transform us into the image of the Son of God. But we do not yet possess the perfection of that righteousness in our persons. We still, as of now, wrestle with our sins still. And yet even as we do this, we need not despair. For it is the righteousness that is gifted to us by faith which justifies. And so our lack of personal righteousness now while it is upsetting to a redeemed soul, isn't cause for despair. Because it is not my attaining of perfection that justifies. Indeed, we wait eagerly, by faith, the future day when grace will bring about the completion of our salvation and we will stand in righteousness. No more sin, but in perfect conformity to Christ's image. This is our hope that we maintain and we wait for by faith, believing God is going to bring this about for those who believe in Christ. It's not something we are working to earn or make a payment toward. It often does upset believers when we are faced with our sinfulness and our constant sinfulness and our struggle with our sinfulness. We lament our lack of sanctification. And yet we're left, as William Perkins wrote, to content ourselves and wait for the fruition of grace till the life to come. The reality is we are not going to be perfected on this side of glory. We are waiting by faith our hope of righteousness. And so in our battling and our striving against sin, we also know resting, trusting God to bring this to fruition. So we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness that is a sure hope. And so when you are faced with your sins, you're believing in Christ Jesus and faced with your continual sinfulness and tempted to be discouraged. Here's what a man by the name of Caspar Olivianus wrote. He said, your faith must be greater than the sense of your sin. It must establish you as righteous in the sight of God and grant you the hope of obtaining a sense of his righteousness and its full fruit Therefore, you ought to judge not according to the feeling of sin, but according to the word of promise. He's saying there that we feel the weight and effect of our sinfulness, and it's frustrating and discouraging to us. And he's saying there to make your faith rise higher than that, to believe that God truly will keep his word, though it maybe seems impossible to you because of the extent of your sinfulness to yet believe the word of God, that he justifies the ungodly who believe in his son. 
and that we will one day indeed be perfected, that he gives this to sinners graciously. This is where we go. This is what we must hope in and believe in when we struggle along in our sinfulness. We have a sure hope because God's word does plainly declare that those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are forgiven. We are sons. We are heirs of righteousness. We await that and we look forward to that. We will stand before God on account of what Christ has done. We will stand and not be crushed. We are to believe that. We are free from the law's condemnation in Christ. We will dwell with our Lord and all of his people eternally in righteousness. This is what the gospel promises and then gives to sinners by faith. Freely. And so we're to believe this. This is what God gives in his grace. And nothing we do beyond that, after that, is going to add to that. Verse 6. It says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. So he says here, circumcision is immaterial when it comes to justification. In other words, whether you're a Jew who's been circumcised or a Gentile who's not been circumcised, that has no bearing here. It contributes nothing. What counts here, he says, is faith. Now I've been stressing, as Paul himself has said, throughout this book, chapter 2, verse 16, one other example, that faith is to be distinguished from our works of the law, from our actions. In faith, we receive Christ. We rest in him and what he has accomplished for sinners. But here we see quite plainly again that this saving faith will go on to produce fruit. Justifying faith is accompanied by love. It is faith which is worked outward, evidenced through love. Love of God and love of neighbor. And we're going to see this as we continue to go uh, further into chapter 5 in coming weeks. But Paul does not envision, nor does he preach, a faith that is a mere sort of casual or mental ascent And then we just go on living as we always have in sin. The faith of which he speaks is a spirit-wrought faith, as he has said. Through the Spirit, in verse 5. It is a spirit-wrought, spirit-given faith. And the faith by which a sinner lays hold of Christ and his justifying righteousness will also go on to produce good works through love. And so the saying that we've repeated and has been repeated many times that we are justified by faith alone, but that faith is never alone, holds true. So this is the same thing that James is speaking of. 
When James talks about saving faith not being a dead faith, but rather is, is proved by works. Works of love evidence a true and saving faith. But we are careful to hold that those works of love are not what justify. They are the fruit and evidence of saving faith. And this distinction must be maintained or everything that Paul has been saying and working towards would be completely undone. So for example... Roman Catholics, take this verse here that mentions faith working through love to mean that justifying faith is faith that is formed by our love. That is, justifying faith is only that which is a perfected faith, a faith perfected by our loving God and loving neighbor. And so faith that truly justifies is really, we're waiting for that. It's a future state that we must reach in which we are believing God and then that belief is perfected by our works, our loving of God and neighbor. And then when faith finally reaches its perfected state, it receives the promised salvation. And so works then, works of love, become part of the instrument by which we are justified because they are part of faith itself. There is not distinction between faith and works. This is what Roman Catholicism does. This is why there was such a, this is why the a major reason why the Reformation occurred. But many others also make this kind of error today when they do not see the distinction or refuse the distinction between faith and our faithfulness, when they don't distinguish between faith and its effect or its fruit. If we are justified by faith, but what that means is your faith and subsequent obedience and works of love and all that, we're justified by faith, then what is that saying? We are justified by our faith and works of love, etc. That's the very thing that Paul is, is saying no to. He's saying to be on guard against. Paul says faith works through or by love. It isn't formed by love, but is working outward through love. He's saying faith is evidenced by love. So this distinction is crucial because your love for God and your love for neighbor will not be perfect this side of glory. And if there is no distinction between believing God for his promised gifts, there's no distinction between that and then your, be, your being faithful in your love and actions, then at best, you're going to be tremendously discouraged. And at worst, if you hold 
to that, despite correction, you will be enslaved. You will be pursuing self-righteousness. You will be on that legal law path. Again, the distinction is crucial, and it's a real distinction that's here in Scripture. Your love, our love, will fail. Again, it's why Paul has said, even just in the previous verse, that we are eagerly awaiting our hope of righteousness. And so if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you believe that he died for sinners, that he is sufficient to save, you rest yourself in what he has accomplished. You rest your hope in him when all is going very well and you've had a good day and you can see that you were able to obey in certain things and it's been a pretty good day and there's no major failing on your part. You still entrust yourselves and make your hope only the Lord Jesus Christ. And likewise, of course, when your love of God and neighbor fails, as we read, as, as Oliviana said, make your faith in God's promise greater than your sense of sin. So the distinction is crucial, not only to preserve grace and the grace of the gospel, but also to preserve the free and joyful, and I think biblical, pursuit of of holiness as Christians. We are not those who are laboring to earn the reward of righteousness. Rather, we are those who labor as free sons who've been given everything, who have an eternal inheritance being stored and awaiting us that is ours because of Christ and that is ours by belief in him. We are free from the law as a, main, as a means of attaining and establishing our righteousness before God. But we are those who then gladly can rejoice in the moral law and commands of God because they are those things that ref, they, they reflect God's own righteousness. God's own character. They are that which pleases our God who has been gracious and kind to us in saving us and forgiving us and granting us everything we need though we were dead in our trespasses and sins. There's a world of difference between striving and battling against sin in order to try to establish ourselves before God in righteousness or keep ourselves in that even. There's a world of difference between that and striving and battling against our sins, understanding that this is not the thing that commends me to God, but it is Christ. So often we do, we slide back into legalistic understanding. We feel the weight of God's law. We feel the condemnation of it because we sin. And this is why we continually preach Christ. This is why we continually need to look to him and believe that he is sufficient for our salvation. Or we will walk around with our heads down and discouraged, lacking any confidence that we would stand before God if we were to die today. 
Saving faith will indeed produce fruit, but we don't make our great hope and boast all of that fruit. If we see it, when we see it, we praise God, we thank God for it, but we realize our hope is Christ Jesus and what he has accomplished. So this law and grace distinction is vital. It is the path of law that demands perfect righteousness. And if we would add any works of ours to the means by which we attain or receive a righteous standing before God, then we set ourselves on that path. And then we are on the hook for the whole of the law in all of its perfection. We must be perfect. That's what God's moral law demands, with not the slightest of failing. And it is this obedience to God's law in absolute perfection that Christ accomplished. He has taken the obligation for righteousness upon himself. He has done this on behalf of all he came to save, those the Father has given to him, those who believe in him. He has obeyed God's law in its entirety with absolute perfection, not merely even just the externals, but in every possible and conceivable way, Christ Jesus was obedient in everything. And in his perfection, he then went to the cross and offered himself as the spotless Lamb of God without blemish to satisfy God's just wrath for our lawlessness. He satisfied God's demands for justice towards sinners. And all that Christ obtained in his coming, in his incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, all that he has obtained, including his perfect righteousness, the forgiveness of sins, sonship, glorification, and eternal inheritance, all that Christ has obtained is something that is then bestowed upon sinners who don't work their way up to it, but rather who recognize our utter helplessness and rather receive that gift by faith. This is grace. This is freedom. It is not a loan that we give that we've got to try and pay back. It is not merely help to get on the path and then we've got to go finish it all on our own. It is a loving and gracious gift from the God of the universe, the creator of all things, who delights to show mercy to wretched, pitiable sinners such as ourselves. And so believe this. See the goodness and kindness of God See the sufficiency of taking him at his word and believing. Lift up your head. Rejoice. And stand firm here in this freedom and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we know that when we examine your holy perfections, and greatness, your law, 
that we do stand condemned under it. But God, we also know that this is the very reason Christ Jesus came and died, was to save those enslaved to sin and under the condemnation of your law. And he came to satisfy your justice by taking the penalty we deserve upon himself. And all that he has won in that redemption, you give to sinners graciously. We just believe and you give this to us. Father, I pray that we would all indeed believe that. That we would abandon self-righteousness. Father, I pray that you would make this our joy. Father, that we would not excuse our sinfulness by any means, but that we would not live our lives under the continual weight of condemnation. Not because our sins are not serious, but because your grace is that great. I pray that our faith would indeed be, go beyond the vision of our sins. That we would behold the greatness of your salvation and kindness and mercy to sinners. Father, I pray that our labors would be a joy to us. Forgive us, Father, where we do return to legalistic ways of thinking. Father, I pray that we would joyfully seek to slay our sin. And, and when we fail, that we would confess that freely and quickly to you. That we wouldn't sit there and whip ourselves forever under the weight of your law, but look to Christ, to, that we would believe. Father, we pray that you would help us to stand firm here and to rejoice in this freedom. Father, we do pray that you'd make us people who delight in your law, who delight in righteousness, who long to pray to you and, and, and know you through your word, and to be in fellowship with your people and to hold forth Christ to the, to the lost world, Father. We are weak people. We know we, we need much help in these things. And we pray you would work these things in our midst for your own namesake, for your own glory. Father, we thank you for the evidences of grace in our midst. So, Father, we just pray that you would help us as we go from this place, help us to believe your promises and to believe that you are truly that good and gracious to all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we pray this together in his good name. Amen.